As part of Ferrari Fridays, William Ross from the Exotic Car Marketplace will be discussing all things Ferrari and interviewing people that live and breathe the Ferrari brand. Topics range from road cars to racing, drivers to owners, as well as auctions, private sales, and trends in the collector market. Welcome back, everybody, to the Ferrari Marketplace. This is William, and I am your host. It's been a little bit. Uh, I kind of lost track of time, so to speak, in regards to... I realize it's been a basically a month since I did another podcast. I kind of... Weeks were getting away from me there. I was busy doing a few other things, and I kept saying, Oh, I got to do it tomorrow. I got to do my podcast tomorrow. I got to do my podcast tomorrow. And then before I know it, it's like all of a sudden it's the weekend. It's like, oh, I'll do it next week. Oh, what's one more week? And all of a sudden I looked at the date, you know, looking at my downloads and stuff on Buzzsprout, and I was like, Whoa! It's been over a month. So getting back to it, I again, I apologize. And hey, I appreciate everyone out there just download and listen to the podcast. I really appreciate it. I'm, I'm working on this. This is just a work in progress. It's always going to be. Um, and if you want, you also can start checking out. I'm putting together a YouTube channel. Now, the YouTube channel, I got the Ferrari Marketplace YouTube channel. But I'm also actually doing, it's 65 Motorsports. If you want to look it up, it's 60, the word, S-I-X-T-Y, the number five, Motorsports. Look it up because that's going to kind of cover everything I go and see. The Ferrari Marketplace itself will just be stuff dedicated to Ferrari. I'm also going to have the Porsche Marketplace. Um, so just want you guys to maybe check those things out, trying to build those up also and get some things moving forward here. But onward and upward. Today... Our topic is my all-time favorite Ferrari. I mean, it's a close tie between this one and an F40. But this one basically is my favorite. And, you know, I was a teenager when this thing came out. But my all-time favorite, the 288 GTO. Now, this car is legendary. Limited build quantities. Only made 272 of them. But, you know, this car is, you know, it was my poster car. I mean, obviously, you know, the F40 came out. That was another one. But, you know, I was... You know, 14 years old when this car came out and it got put out there and its car is just absolutely spectacular and it's something i just lost it after and i've been fortunate enough in my life this is a few years back i got to drive one once too so but we can talk about that a little bit down the road here but anyways it does live up to its lives up to it definitely definitely so but anyways let's talk about the 288 gto now as we all know prior to that the only other car ferrari put out that carried the moniker gto gran turismo obligato was the 250 gto now so that you know obviously carried a lot of weight you know be able to pull off that moniker having that attached to your uh you know designation to your name of the car because you know they had a, the 250 gto that's legendary i mean that's beyond legendary i mean that's just i mean that's like the top of the food chain now, some other people might go with some other ones, but to me, I think the 250GO is the top of the food chain. But anyways, you know, so it had been close to, what was that, almost 30 years since they had actually used that moniker on a car, so they brought it out. Now, some people actually go and say the argument is, or not say the argument, but the history is, oh, they built a 288 to go Group B racing. Well, yes and no. They actually didn't build that car to specifically go Group B racing. They built the car because they were fiddling around, and I don't know how many of you are familiar with Italian tax laws and you know circumventing those laws. 
But in the late 70s, mid 70s, whatnot, you know, Italy's way of taxing the car was on engine displacement. So Ferrari's kind of way around that was, i.e., let's turbocharge the cars. And so they had the 208 that was in Italy that came out with, and it was turbocharged. And that was just basically to circumvent kind of tax laws and whatnot because of engine displacement. So they were like, you know, in discussions and whatnot. And so, you know, getting up a little bit, but, you know, talking with his other people that are involved with their Ferraris, like, hey, you know, we need to build, you know, uh, the, the supercar term, hypercar, what the heck you want to call it, you know, really what it was not back then was not, you know, in play. It was not being utilized to describe any type of vehicle. But, you know, Ferrari needed to be Ferrari. They needed to come out with something that was, you know, legit. You know, hey, this is, you know, the, you know, top of the food chain. I'm going to use that, I guess, wording by me a little too much. But, you know, they needed to have something that had power. It could get out there and get up and go. And, you know, in talking, using the car, I said, well, let's turbocharge. We got the eight-cylinder. Let's, hey, let's go turbocharge that. And they decided, hey, let's go that route. Now, a lot of people also say, and kind of technically it was, the car was kind of derived from the 308, 208, you know, but I think, but in actuality, it's a completely new, different car from that when they built it. The only thing that I remains the same was basically the roof. Um, other than that, everything else, and I think possibly the hood just a little bit, but um, not completely. But other than that, it was all completely new. Chassis, the whole nine yards. They didn't just stick out something else. Because what they actually did was, this kind of is, is weird, is they lengthened the chassis, your wheels, the, they lengthened the chassis, but shortened the car. So they lengthened, made it longer, but made it shorter also, if you understand what I'm saying. And they also made it wider than the 308. Now, another thing is, is this was the first use of carbon fiber, well, it's Kevlar and fiberglass, you know, kind of the pre-monocure, pre-precursor to utilizing carbon fiber. So they started to utilize that, but now it was only utilized on the hood and the roof. So now I say, well, I thought they used it before. Well, they use the same you know, shape and out of the roof, but they really only use it on the roof and the hood. Everything else was aluminum. And they actually shaved close to, how was it, 500 kilograms off of this car, or 500 pounds roughly, um, off of that, of the real 308. I mean, so that's a significant amount of weight on a car that's not very big. So I think it was just, you know, when the 308 form was something that's just a little over, it's like 3,100, 3,300 pounds, and then they got it down to like a little over 2,500, 2,600 pounds when they utilized all the aluminum, everything on the car. So, I mean, that, that in itself played a major role in making this car perform. So getting to that, so they obviously designed the body. They stretched out the, the wheelbase shortened up the body itself, and they kicked out the tires. And obviously, you know, one reason, too, is is they had to be able to accommodate the wider tires they put on there. And obviously for grip, handling, what have you. So, you know, they had to accommodate all that space, so they had to make room for it. So they make everything wider. So what in turn that did, as we all know, gave that car that stance it has, which is just, I mean, you have to know your Ferraris uh, to an extent. I mean, to, to the layman, they probably wouldn't understand what it is, but everyone knows that when they see it. Well, that's a 280 GTO. I mean, it's subtle enough. It wasn't like super obnoxious and aggressive when they built those in regards to kind of, uh, you know, beefing them up, making them a little more muscular. You know, with the, you know, fender flares going on the front and the rear, you know, um, they, they really, really did a 
they did a perfect, not say perfect job, but you know, they did a phenomenal, phenomenal job, not making something that was completely obnoxious. Now, the the one, you know, I guess the thing against it, and this was the problem they run into a little bit, trying to sell these a little bit in the beginning. Even though they had no problem, they end up selling them all really quick. So, you know, they had to build the, you know, um, the, the 200 cars because it's kind of go back again for the Group E. But anyways, we'll get back to that. Uh, but some people uh, looked at it and kicked themselves now for it, too. It all looks too much like a 308, so they wouldn't go for the car. And it was almost twice as much. Um, so they wouldn't bother with it. But anyways... They had to, you know, again, now when they were building these, it was more along the clients just to build a real car. But at that time, Group B was, you know, coming into play and fruition. And there was another manufacturer out there who was kind of in the same boat that did the same thing with the 959. So the car wasn't, they didn't go and say, okay, we're going to build and design this car because we want to go Group B racing. They wanted to build this car to build a, you know, a collectible, low volume very muscular, very fast car. And their thought was then, okay, it will, you know, fit into the parameters, you know, that we could take it and modify it and go Group E racing. So the driving factor in making this car and building it wasn't, hey, we need to build these 200 cars to homologate it to go Group E racing. It was, we're going to build this car. And hey, since it'll fit in those parameters and requirements, Let's we can take a Group E racing. Let's build the 200 that are required, you know, and they end up building the 272. But again, the key thing was is here was building the low volume, make it a highly collectible car, which they did. Um, you know, right now currently these things trade in, you know, the 3.5 to 4 million mark, depending on mileage, shape, whatnot, Class C certification, what have you. And they're creeping up. You know, five, six years ago, you were probably at the 2.5 million range, you know, that part. You know, so pretty much almost any Ferrari, Enzo era Ferrari, especially if it's a manual, starting to grow up. I mean, you're starting to have the newer ones that are coming out, too, that are just, you know, obscenely getting up there in price. But, you know, it is what it is. You know, that's how they do it. They only build X amount, and their waiting list is absolutely scary. So trying to get it is just nuts. I mean, the only way you get in line to be able to come a Ferrari customer and start buying old, buying used ones. So, you know, and to be able to be on the list to buy the, like, say, the LaFerraris that come out, what have you, they're such limited numbers. I mean, you, you got to be the top of the food chain in regards to a Ferrari collector. And to start that out, you know, hey, you got to start buying the cars and start having your collection. You got to have five, six, seven of them. And you can't just have some, like a 348 or something like that. No, you got to have the big dogs and be able to kind of get in that line to be able to get considered for it. Because those ones, you know, they choose you, you know, and they really monitor what you do with your cars also and how you present because you're representing their brand. It's kind of it's it's really interesting how they go about handling the brand itself in regards to an ownership side of it. Now, not to say that hey, you know anyone, you know if you have the money, hey, you can go buy one. Like I said, if you really want to work up the food chain there and get you know in line to be able to own and get that phone call from you know the Ferrari North American president or what have you, saying oh hey, Mister So and So, you know. This is coming out. This is, you know, top secret, blah, blah, blah. We're going to invite you to this showing, yada, yada, yada. You know, that kind of jazz. You know, I mean, that takes a while to get to it. And you've got to have a lot of money, let me tell you. But anyways, let's get back to the 288. So anyways, you know, this car was built and designed. And it was, as I said, it was, again, more along the lines to they wanted to build their next, you know, 
hot thing, so to speak, you know, the, the car. So and just happened the fact is, hey, this will fit in the parameters to go Group B racing. And we'll get back to the Group B homologation stuff a little bit later because they do end up making a, I don't want to say modified, but they make the 288 GTO Evolution that is was basically designed and made to go for Group B racing. They only made six of them. But obviously, with the demise of Group B at the time wise, whatnot, that's all they ended up making. Was that was it? So, and it never really got utilized for what it was for. And those things are, you know, very highly collectible also because they only made six. So, that is something also to keep an eye out there. It's a really different, interesting looking car in regards to how they modified it. They went, you know, the aerodynamics, the Venturi tunnels. I mean, they went extreme on that car in regards to making it competitive and it would have been cool really cool to see that thing running in a rally event like the Monte Carlo or something like that because you know you kind of think oh well you look at WRC now you know you see the cars are four-wheel drive all this stuff well back then you know obviously Audi was the one coming in with the four-wheel drive but you know a lot of majority of everything was you know rear-wheel drive with Lancia and their 037 Stradale was the one that was uh, the last car rear-wheel drive car to win the uh, uh, rally championship you know, then everything started going to four-wheel drive, but, you know, then they had those monster Group B stuff. And I tell you what, if you never have, go onto YouTube, look up Group B Rally, and watch some of these videos. It's insane. Not only watching these people drive, but watch the spectators. These people are nuts in regards to how close they would, like, stand out in the road and everything like that. I mean, it's insane what these people do. I mean, it's absolutely nuts. But anyways, let's get back to my favorite car, the 288 GTO. Now, the cool thing about the GTO is, you know, the 288 GTO is the fact is, you know, it's not that big of a car. Now, I don't know if you ever seen one in person or got up to it, but it's not that big of a car. But the one thing is, it's very comfortable. Now, you, the one thing is, do is you sit very, I want to say upright. You're, you're, you know, you're not sitting in the car. You're almost kind of sitting on top of it, if you can understand what I'm saying. You know, and the steering wheel is fixed. So it's not like this has got, you know, a button or a lever on there where you can tilt and, you know, all that, you know, the steering wheel or telescope or anything. Nope, it's fixed to where it's at. So you get in there, again, you you sit up top and I said, I, I don't know if you ever had a chance to sit in one, but if you ever sat in like a 308 or something like that, it's kind of the same feeling. You, you, you sit up on it. It's kind of an odd feeling. You're not sitting in it. Because again, you know, this car is not a, like a, a tub. It's not a carbon fiber tub, how they built it and get down there. You know, how this thing is made. It's on, a, you know, this chassis that's made onto. So you're kind of sitting up on it. So it's, it takes a little bit of getting used to. Um, and if you're taller than six foot, you're going to be in there tight. I will tell you that. I'm 6'1", and my head's hitting the top, whatnot, but I didn't care because, hey, I was getting to drive it. And, again, you know, legroom-wise, whatnot. You know, first of all, the Italians, and I'm not saying this in, a, in any type of racial profile or something, you know, they were a bit on smaller, you know, and shorter, and especially back in the 80s, you know. So they were kind of, I won't say building it for them, but, you know, basically you got your designer and manufacturer engineer when you said they're kind of building it around themselves. So the car's a bit on the smaller side. So if you're taller than 6'1", you're not going to be comfortable. You're not going to be driving this thing all that much. But And again, on the other side, though, like for me, I didn't care because, hey, it's my dream car, and you, you'll tolerate that stuff. Now, I don't see myself being able to take one and go for a drive across country in it because, oh, my God, I'd probably just be dead after about an hour of my back. But anyways, it's an interesting driving position that you're in. Now, all these cars, they're all built in red. All of them are red. There was one black one that was done special, but the 271 of them were all red, 
all with black interior. So if you see one that's a different color um, and or if you see that black one, you got to find out if it's actually the true black one that was built. But if you see in some other color, like there's some white ones out there, some yellow ones, you know, they're, they're a wrap or they got repainted. So don't let anyone tell you differently. No factory. All they built was 271 reds and one black. Now, I've tried to dig into that to find out why or who was that one black one was for. And I really couldn't find much on it, which I was a little bit surprised because um, you would think that that would be pretty easy to find because, you know, out of that car and do it is um, do it. So now I know some people say that none were done in black, but, you know, um, I don't know, from what I could tell, they, 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 one was black. So I don't know why. I don't know how they pulled it off, but someone did. But there is one black one that came from the factory. Don't let anyone tell you differently because there was one that was came in black. But anyway, so we got a V8 twin turbo, IHI turbochargers that put on there. Now, they were using on the other cars, like when they did that two-way, it was the KKK stuff and that. But for, I guess, engineering purposes, I guess you could say, and just be able to fit in the car and how they did the IHIs were a better fit because they needed to fit that vehicle. They needed to fit the motor in there. So, and the car, the engine itself, they fit that thing in there uh, longitudinally, if I'm saying that correctly, and probably not. Uh, sorry about my pronunciation, but, you know, hey, that's, it is what it is. But anyways, to fit that in there and how that engine was placed in there, you know, the IHIs were just a better fit for them. And it got in there, so nice, nice tight packaging and getting in there. And with that, you had about, you know, the easy number is 400 horsepower. It's usually about 395 to 400. They say somewhere in that range. Basically, 400 horsepower and 369 foot-pounds of torque. So you got a nice power to it. Now, obviously, that thing not weighing much, whatnot. Now, you know, you think, oh, that thing should be going three seconds. Well, you know, it was a different time, whatnot. But back then, zero to 60 in five seconds, that was fast. And that was very fast. And so, you know, that car was quick for back in its day. Now, you know, you had a lot of other cars that were kind of getting up there. I know now this day and age you got cameras that could go faster than that. But, you know, you, you got to remember the time frame you look from. And, again, it's about the experience because you're talking about a car, you know, so analog, you know, no power steering, no power brakes, no nothing. I mean, it's just, just you and the car, the steering wheel, and the pedals, which I just love. You know, to me, that's what it needs to be. So it is, you know, that analog driving experience. And I don't know if you need anyone listening, get back out there and find something that's like that. You know, I always tell people the story. You know, like me, and my first, uh, me and my wife got first got together and uh, got married, you know, but when we first dated and married for the first three years, we were together. Well, I think the back probably the first five years together. She had a Saturn SL1, five-speed, just bare bones, you know, First car she bought it herself after she graduated college, everything that she you know loved that car. But by the time we got together, whatnot, we you know bought our house, whatnot. That thing had 130 some thousand miles on it, but no power steering. <laughs> had power brakes, but you know five speed manual, whatnot. You know I think it barely had 100 horsepower. But you know I loved driving that thing because it just it was so analog and just ringing the shit out of it. I mean it was just I, I dug it. It was fun. I mean you could you know scream that thing up there in the RPM range, and have some fun with it. You know. Now, obviously, the Toyota GTO is no Saturn. And 
shoot me now. I apologize for it. I'm not comparing it. Don't even go there. I'm not comparing it to that. Not even close. God knows, two opposite sides of the spectrum. But just saying is the analog driving experience that you get is second to none. You know, it's one of those things where, you know, you feel the road, you feel the car, you feel everything through it. It's not sterilized. It's not dumbed down, so to speak. You know, it's you feel what's going on, and you know it's just such a better driving experience, and you just drove it, drive, you know, enjoy it that much more. So, anyways, so getting back to the car. Now we're talking about you know, uh, you know, sidewise. You know, they had the on the tires, they had the two-piece Speedline aluminum wheels that they put on there, and you know these things were actually center lock center hubs. They're not a you know five lug nut thing like that. No, those were it's a center lock wheel, so which is really cool. It gives it that that real really cool look on it. So you had the tires going on the back there, and you had the 225-50-16s at the front. You had the 255-50-16s at the rear. So you had 16-inch wheels on this thing. Now, this day and age, all everyone's rolling on 20s, you know, but, hey, you know, actually, size-wise, whatnot, you know, it fits it good, fits it perfect. Again, you know, the car is, is what it is, you know, and it's just, it's, to me, it's, I don't know, say perfect. No car is absolutely perfect. But to me, in my eyes, that thing's pretty dang close. It doesn't have the obnoxious wings on it. doesn't have anything like that. Nice and subtle. It's got that nice, I want to say, ducktail spoiler on the back. You know, just giving it some of that aerodynamic, you know, capability, some downforce to it. So, but again, you know, it's not, people aren't taking these cars on a regular basis and driving at 180 miles an hour. Ain't happening. You know, th- these cars, you're, you're cruising, yeah, you're going to get over 100 and whatnot, but. Yeah, you might get over a little bit, but the lift in that thing gets taken care of by the aerodynamics on this car. Now, the one unique thing, and this kind of goes back to the Group B aspect of it, is the headlights on it. Now, it does have the pop-up headlights, but it also has those four headlights that I guess you would say are in the lower valves of the front bumper, so to speak. Um, again, that was for, in essence, that if they were going to go Group B racing, you know, need to have the lighting and stuff like that, and you had to incorporate these things into it. So, hence, that's why those lights are, but it gives that really cool, unique front end look to it. You really don't ever have to use the pop-up headlights, so which is great. Now, the other cool thing is, if you look behind the rear wheels, you'll see the three slats in it. That's kind of homage to the 250 GTO, and those are functional. That's for, you know, letting the heat out, whatnot, for the rear engine that's back there. So, keep that in mind. Kind of gives you a little idea of what it is. And, you know, again, interior-wise, you got the legendary, you know, gated box that... Again, if you ever get the opportunity to drive a manual Ferrari, that click, 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 going in and out is just, it's phenomenal. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a really, really cool feeling experience and sound once you do it. I mean, it's a lot of fun. I highly recommend it. If, said, if you get the opportunity, definitely, definitely take it and do it. So, but anyways, that's kind of all I want to talk about that on the 288 GTO. Um, I might ramble a little too much on it. I apologize, but, you know, I just love that car. It's phenomenal. You know, I definitely look up, watch some videos of it. It's a, it's a interesting car to check out and listen to. And like I said, you know, it's it's a very, very unique car. Um, you know, it's in that I would say the I don't want to say the trifecta, but that you know the Holy Grail Ferrari family, the two eighty GTO F forty F fifty uh, Enzo La Ferrari. So you know, it's it's in that whole you know little group there that you know if you're a lucky enough person to own all those cars, you're doing quite well in your life. Um, but anyways. I'm going to wrap it up with that. Um, I'm going to go and watch, say, the second second practice session for the Miami Grand Prix because that's what's going on this weekend. So, hey, I'm excited about that. It looks pretty cool. Watch the first practice session. But that's about all I have to say on that. And the next episode, we're going to talk about my second 
I guess you would say my, I don't want to say second favorite, but almost like, you know, say I got my tie there going out to 280, but 280 GTO is a little bit farther ahead, you know, just a smidge. But anyways, it's the F40. Now, again, this is another one. I had to drive. I didn't get to drive fast, but I got to drive around a parking lot real quick, and even that was uh, enough. I just, I about, I couldn't believe it that I was having that opportunity. And yes, the person that I drove both those was the same person. They owned both those cars. There was one person, so they were kind enough to let me test them out. So anyways, that's what the next episode is going to be about. We're going to talk about the F40. But anyways, that's wrapping up on the 280 GTO. I appreciate everybody listening. Uh, I really, really do. So, hey, and remember, spread the word. Send it out there. Tag like or whatever that is on, you know, to let know a new episodes drop so you can uh, listen to those. And if you want to say, check out the uh, YouTube channel. Got a bunch of videos up. Like I said, you can check out the Ferrari Marketplace or you can check out 65 Motorsports and look at what's going on. I got some new stuff I just posted from the other weekend uh, at a Cars and Coffee I attended. And I got uh, IMSA coming up here in mid-Ohio next weekend. I'm going to head down to get some videos posted on that. But again, hey, I appreciate everybody listening. Take care. Peace. This episode has been brought to you by Grand Touring Motorsports as part of our Motoring Podcast Network. For more episodes like this, tune in each week for more exciting and educational content from organizations like the Exotic Car Marketplace, the Motoring Historian, Brake Fix, and many others. If you'd like to support Grand Touring Motorsports and the Motoring Podcast Network, sign up for one of our many sponsorship tiers at www.patreon.com forward slash GT Motorsports. Please note that the content, opinions, and materials presented and expressed in this episode are those of its creator, and this episode has been published with their consent. If you have any inquiries about this program, please contact the creators of this episode via email or social media, as mentioned in the episode.